unmistakable sounds of the civil rights and entertainment icon Harry Belafonte, whose passing was announced earlier today. A fighter for the cause, always hail the traveler. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, a preview of the tribute to a seminal hip-hop collective, Native Tongues, with Holyoke's Damani Gordon. And Guitars Behind Bars will talk with NEPM's Jill Kaufman about guitar lessons happening at the Franklin County House of Corrections. But first, space. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more kitchen table astronomy at the Amherst table of Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, Eid Mubarak. Eid Mubarak, thank you very much. And that's what we're going to talk about today, astronomy and Eid. But before we do that, I do want to promote a science on screen film at Amherst Cinema on Tuesday, The Martian, which a lot of people love, with Matt Damon, and it's going to be introduced by... Mount Holyoke professor, Dr. Darby Dyer. She's fantastic. She has driven a rover on Mars. You know, she's got like the joystick at the Jet Propulsion Lab, right? Right, and, and now- She's driving it around. It's more complicated than that, but that's how I imagine it. It's like Atari. <laughs> and there's Darby Dyer, the professor, driving the rover on Mars. It's just like that. <laughs> No, but she now is actually uh, in charge of Venus missions. But here, she'll be talking about the Martian. So that would be fantastic. For those who aren't familiar with the Muslim celebration of Eid, which I gave you the greeting, Eid Mubarak, at the beginning, what, tell us what that commemorates. So that is the end of Ramadan. And so Ramadan is the fasting month. This is equivalent of Christmas in that sense. And uh, growing up in Pakistan, it was really amazing because you eat sweets most of the day and uh, you visit people and people come to your house and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But what I want to talk about here is the astronomy part because Islamic months are based upon the moon. And there are interesting controversies about that, including uh, pretty much every year, there are disagreements about when Eid is going to be, which has a, to do with astronomy. Because Eid begins when you first see the moon. Is that signify the beginning of the next month? Right. So Islamic calendar is moon-based. And, and also one of the most famous Islamic symbols is the crescent moon. The crescent moon, right. So the way it starts is that when you see the moon, and here I'm using the quotes, see, because that's where the debate comes in, uh -huh. right? When you see the new moon as a crescent, then the following day would be Eid, for example. And it's for every month. But of course, for 11 out of 12 months, people don't care. Like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> when you can't eat or drink anything during daylight hours for an entire month, you are looking for that moon. That's exactly right. And <laughs> and that's what leads to a lot of controversies. It's also the beginning of Ramadan and the end of Ramadan. So those everybody's attention is there, and especially at the end of Ramadan. <laughs> are you going to be celebrating it or not? Now, here is the problem. And I remember this back in my undergraduate days when I was at Stony Brook. I was an astronomy major. And I remember telling my professor, I don't know if I'll be in class tomorrow or the day after tomorrow uh, because of Eid. And he was a nice guy and he was curious. He was like, you know, he's like, oh, that, that's okay. But may I know why? And I was like, well, it's unclear when the moon sighting when the crescent is going to be there and i remember him saying sort of like you know very polite way as you can imagine <laughs> he goes like yeah, well, it's not any um, of my business but you know you are an astronomer <laughs> i mean we do know where the moon is and i was like yeah but it's complicated right <laughs> so and so that's what i want to talk about so 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 there are two things one the actual science issue we can calculate 
where the moon is uh, with respect to the earth and the sun for millions of years. For the next 100,000 years, I can exactly tell you. Mm -hmm. And there is the definition of astronomical new moon. Astronomical new moon is basically roughly, it's when the moon is very close to the sun. And so nobody on earth would see the moon at all. Uh, So this year it was, for example, on Friday. That's the new moon astronomically where you don't see anything. But remember, the Muslim symbol is a crescent. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a little bit beyond the astronomical new moon. Usually, crescent is very thin few hours after the astronomical new moon, and we estimate that it has to be about at least 14 hours, at least, past when you can't see the moon at all. Then it is- Is we astronomers or we Muslims? We. We. Everybody. Humans. The point is that in some places, so for example, this year we knew that in Pakistan, there is no way the moon would be too young to be seen in the evening time on Thursday. So we knew that Eid in Pakistan should be on Saturday. And thankfully, that's what happened. But because the U.S. is about nine hours behind Pakistan, so the moon, by the time moon sets here, the age of the moon is nine hours more. Mm -hmm. And so it can be thicker. So this is very technical mumbo jumbo we are talking about. (laughs) But the point is that you can have Eid in different locations purely based upon how much thick the crescent is. So Eid in Pakistan was Saturday, but Eid here in the U.S. was Sunday? On Friday. Oh, so Eid was Friday in Pakistan and Saturday here? No, let's try one more time. (laughs) It was Friday in the U.S. and Saturday in Pakistan. Oh, okay. And the reason is because it was seen here, the moon could be seen here on Thursday night Uh because it's a little bit older. Uh You see, so, so there is this inbuilt, complicated system in terms of how, whether the moon would be visible or not. Different areas celebrate at different times. Here is the big sort of like issue. Should you use calculations or should you use your eye that's, or somebody should see the moon and report it and use that? And that has been a big controversy because uh, some people think that no, calculation should not be used because the Prophet in Islam, or around that time um, in the seventh century, people did not use calculations. And so some people think, okay, here is this issue of tradition that moon had to be seen by somebody. And others say, well, wait a minute, but it's a calendar. The point is to have the ease of calculations, that's important. And there are heated debates on that. And so I wrote an article uh, about that actually for a Pakistani newspaper. I find these, because this is close to my research as well, on how people take these issues of modern science and make it practical. So if you are looking at it, hey, I'm preserving a tradition, then that becomes a really important thing and calculations can be offensive. Mm -hmm. And if you're using calculations, you go like, well, these people are backwards. Look, we have the science available, but these people are rejecting science and hence they are backwards. So 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 you could use it depending on which class you wanted to get out of in your undergraduate. You could just go with (laughs) tradition or science depending on which day of classes you wanted to miss. That's right. And (laughs) so in the U.S. now, there is Islamic Society of North America that does use calculations and that started using it a few years ago. And it got quite a bit of pushback, but they have persisted with that. There have been some interesting compromises in there. In Pakistan, uh, there is a, a committee which is called the Moon Sighting Committee. Mm-hmm. That's the job of the Moon Sighting Committee to figure out when the new moon is going to be seen or not, right? And Turkey just uses calculations. So what I am interested in is that it's actually oftentimes not about religious ritual 
but about authority. If there are imams, they say, wait a minute, we get to decide mm -hmm. when a new moon or the, or the new month, Islamic month is going to start. Uh, in fact, the head of this moon sighting committee in Pakistan. I love that interview. This was back in 2002 and I watched on TV and I still remembered it and actually took notes from it because he was debating it with Meteorological Society in Pakistan, our association, and they used to give predictions. They were having this debate and the meteorological this head person was saying, come on, we are in the 21st century. We should use calculations. And this guy said, hold on, this new moon of Ramadan is an Islamic month. Meteorological Association has nothing. There is, it doesn't have any jurisdiction on when the new Islamic month will start or not. And to me, that's a really interesting point because what he is saying is that science or no science, that, that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is who gets to say when the new Islamic month is starting and it's the moon sighting committee. These kind of debates have happened in the past whenever new technology comes in. I know a lot of examples within Islam, but there are examples with Judaism, with Christianity, with every religion. The Pope let Boston Catholics have corned beef on St. Patrick's Day, but only like Boston Catholics. Well, Weird stuff. Special, like, you know. <laughs> right, but, and, and then you have elevators uh, on Sabbath, for example, sort of like, you know, that go by themselves. They stop at every floor and yeah. so on and so forth. In the same way, there have been debates about the use of printing press to print Quran. Uh, for me, one of the fascinating ones was about loudspeaker because the question was in prayers, is it the sound of the Imam that is amplified or is it a new sound that is coming in? So that's no longer the Imam. So who are you following? Mm -hmm. So there are these interesting debates more closely parallel to the moon sighting debate was that there was this issue of finding direction to Mecca. Muslims pray towards Mecca wherever they are in the world. And in the early days of Islam, Muhammad and, and, and the Prophet and his companions went to Medina, which is north of Mecca. So they prayed south. And then Islam spread pretty fast within the first hundred years. There were these new mosques being built. And the question was, okay, so where are they pointing? And early mosques, this is a really interesting stuff. Some of these mosques are actually pointing south. Even though they are, for example, in North Africa, there is this question was, okay, should they follow tradition because that's where the mosques had pointed earlier on, or should they use mathematical astronomy to figure out exactly where Mecca is? And those debates actually continued for a few hundred years. So it's an interesting thing. And of course, today you have these apps, you can have yeah. Kibla finders, the Kibla is the same direction to Mecca. You can have these apps in there. Nobody's having that debate. Mm -hmm. So the way I look at these things is more about that th we just happen to be living at a time today where this is a live debate about whether we should use calculations for the moon sighting or not. But in the next few decades, next decade, people will be on the moon. There will be Muslims over there too. And so seeing the crescent will not really be possible because <laughs> you will be on the moon, not to mention that one day on the moon will be about 29 days. And so there are really fascinating problems that will come up. So to me, thinking about Eid on the moon is a good exercise that, yeah, we are living in these sort of like, you know, live debates happening. People get very emotional one way or the other. But a few decades from now, this is not going to be an issue. People are going to be using calculations. And, and the reason is because religions are flexible and people are pragmatic. What was the best thing you ate on Eid? Well, 
there is something called, and it's a weakness, it's, it's called gulab jamun. Oh, my, my mouth is watering right now, by the way. <laughs> it's like, you know, this evolutionary response. Uh, no, gulab jamun, uh, I don't even want to look at the recipe because it's just, I do, it's magical. <laughs> These are honey balls. They're very sweet. They are, they belong to a category in Pakistan or South Asia called mitai, which is just means sweet. And they are like very, very, very sweet. Uh, but we got them. Here is a local business plug from Bombay Royale. Nice. And they have these small little tiny gulab jamuns and I can eat those like a half a dozen. Uh, I shouldn't, but I can. And, and, and so does my son. So that's how we have to are absolutely delicious. I would also eat a giant pile of them. Like, they're the best. Dr. Hamid will be part of Science on Screen at Amherst Cinema tonight with Mount Holyoke astronomer Dr. Darby Dyer, who is among the planetary scientists leading NASA's new mission to explore the surface of Venus. They are screening The Martian with Matt Damon, and next week we'll be joining Mr. Universe at the unveiling of the new and improved Seymour Planetarium at the Springfield Museums. Later this hour, a preview of the tribute to a seminal hip-hop collective Native Tongues with Holyoke's Damani Gordon. And we'll talk with NEPM's Jill Kaufman about guitars behind bars at the Franklin County House of Corrections. But first, we'll do our local hero spotlight. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. It's time for another local hero spotlight with Bill Corman from CESA, the local hero folks, and Chelsea Gazillo from the American Farmland Trust. Chelsea, what is the American Farmland Trust? We are a national organization dedicated to protecting farmland, promoting sound farming practices, and keeping farmers on the land. We do our work from kitchen tables to the halls of Congress to promote our mission. And you're also involved with our good buddy, Chef Neftali Duran from Holyoke, where Kalisa and I need to go back and eat more places in Holyoke with Neft soon. But yeah, you, we're, we're working on it. It's, we're working on it. It's slow. We're in a lot of flux of change and things. <laughs> and so I would say we deserve to go out today. Yeah, I think to we do lunch. too. But tell us a little bit about your work with uh, Chef Neft, who does a lot of food security issues. Well, I'm a former member of the Holyoke Food and Equity Collective, which is a local uh, organization that gleans food from farmers in the lower Pioneer or in the upper Pioneer Valley on the other side of the Tofu Curtain and brings the food back to Holyoke to feed those uh, who need it most. And sometimes, full disclosure, I volunteer with them sometimes. Also, full disclosure, sometimes we go to Neff's house and eat oysters after the show <laughs> with Chelsea. But tell us a little bit about your history and your relationship with American Farmland Trust. Uh, well, my personal history is that I grew up in Chesterfield, and now I live in Holyoke. And uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer on my mom's side, and my dad's father was a first-generation Italian-American uh, immigrant to this area. And growing up in the valley, I recognized that a lot of, or I saw firsthand that a lot of uh, farmland was being developed. It wasn't until later in my life that I knew why that development took place and that we needed that farmland to continue to promote local agriculture. So my connection is, is that I think Massachusetts was at the forefront of a lot of development pressures in the 70s and 80s, and we have the first farmland preservation program in the, in the country, the uh, Agricultural Preservation Restriction Program. Just growing up here and witnessing the development and seeing what farmland produces for uh, our local food economy has made me be appreciative of my current role at AFT. The APR, as we call it here, the Agricultural Preservation Restriction is that sort of a template for what the American Farmland Trust is doing on a national scale? 
Yeah, so AFT started in 1980, uh, and we started as a national agricultural land trust. We were actually started by Peggy Rockefeller, um, who at the time was sitting on the Nature Conservancy board, and she said to the board, what are we doing to make sure that our agricultural lands are being protected as well as our open space and forest lands? And... TNC wasn't interested at the time in um, the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy wasn't interested in the time to promote farmland protection. So, uh, thus led to the birth of American Farmland Trust. And we have since worked across the country to promote purchase of agricultural conservation easement programs. Because of our efforts in working at the state level, in 19, I think it was the 1985 Farm Bill, Congress created the Agricultural Conservation, or what is now known as the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. Do you feel like you've had more success with progress on a state level than a federal level, just because of, I mean, scale? Well, I think that state-level policies can influence and lead to larger systemic federal policy changes because of our work at the state level to create state PACE programs, Purchase of Agricultural Conservation Easement programs, that influenced the creation of a federal agricultural preservation program. So that's kind of a model I think we see in a lot of activism nationally, that when you can't move the federal government in the direction you'd like to see it go, you go state by state. Which is so funny because liberals are usually one of the big government. But then now all of a sudden it's like the tables have turned and more progressive people are trying to do things on a local and state level like that. You know, Massachusetts being at the forefront. But I think what you ultimately see that is if you can move the federal government, the amount of resources are so large. In fact, the state agricultural preservation restriction program does receive some federal funds and would love to receive more. And is that coming through the American Farmland Trust? Chelsea Gazillo, who is the New England representative (laughs) of the American Farmland Trust here? Well, we at the federal level are pushing for more funding in the agricultural conservation easement program in this upcoming farm bill. And during the summer, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And with that came a influx in 20, of $20 billion towards a bunch of different conservation programs at USDA NRCS. Now Congress, as they're debating this upcoming farm bill, because we have Republicans that are controlling the House. The Republicans are looking at the funding through the IRA as additional funding that's on the table for them to spend in the upcoming Farm Bill. So basically, they're trying to rewrite the rules of the IRA funding. And AFT is pushing for that IRA funding to stay in the conservation programs it was intended to be used for. Inflation Reduction Act, American Farmland Trust. If we get a little, <laughs> little bit of an alphabet soup here. Well, you, have, you end up with that when you're talking about government programs yes. in general because their names are so long yeah. and we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> there are different actual independent nonprofits that are going forward to put land in trust as well, right? Like Mount Grace Land Trust Mm -hmm. and uh, Hilltown Cooperative Land Trust and Kestrel Land Trust. So all of these local land trusts work with the state's uh, APR program to protect farmland from development. And what my organization does is we really advocate for the programs to be fully functioning, to protect farmland in a timely manner, and to be fully funded. How bad is it in regards to people who have given up the farmland? How much farmland have we lost in this time period when we weren't focusing on trying to preserve it? 
So Massachusetts lost 27,200 acres of farmland to urban housing development and low-density residential land use between 2001 to 2016, according to a study that American Farmland Trust conducted in 2020 called Our Farms Under Threat. And just one other point I want to make that Massachusetts continues to have some of the most expensive farmland in the country, uh, with the average price of farmland per acre being over $13,000. We just need to do more in terms of protecting farmland and promoting farmland access opportunities. Yeah, because you can imagine that it's a limited group of people with a certain amount of resources that are going to be able to access that farmland despite what their traditions and their inclinations might be. Yeah, usually it's farmers with generational wealth. Uh, or those that fall into a big pocket of money. Um, and so our young beginning farmers, especially our black indigenous and other farmers of color, really struggle to access farmland, to purchase farmland, and to stay on the land. And we need to do more as a state to promote opportunities for these individuals to get into farming and to ultimately own land and have access to generational wealth. So I think one thing that's been interesting when we bring guests on, Monty and Khalees, is that we always peel back a little bit to the personal side of who folks are because we're a community here and it and it's really interesting. This coming Sunday, we do have an event coming up called Field Notes. Oh, yeah, I know about that. I hope Monty and Khalees make it. I'm the MC, so I should come. Exactly, exactly. That, that always is important. But Chelsea has stepped up to be a storyteller this year. Uh-huh. I think it's interesting when you're a policy wonk and you're doing all those acronyms to then say, okay, I'm going to use my heart and tell a story about my past and how I got to be here today. So this is not quite your story, but Chelsea, I'm wondering what did the 10-year-old Chelsea think when she was sitting in the kitchen or outside in the backyard or with her grandfather? Is this where she thought she would be? Well, when I was 10, I was an introvert, so the thought of getting on the stage at the Academy of Music would have probably terrified me. I've always had an appreciation for local food, which I'll talk about in my story. Uh, so I don't think my 10-year-old self would be shocked to find out that I was working to advance sustainable agriculture and continue, in some ways, my family's legacy on both sides to eat really, really good food because I'm Italian-American. There you have it. Yeah, there that's, you all, have it. that's all that it comes down to. You know, I mean, as an Italian-American, we know that the best food comes from really good ingredients, right? I agree. Monty, which no is matter what like, your yeah, ethnic exactly. tradition is, it's still it, it, it's, it's true across the board. So you mentioned that your grandfather had a dairy farm, and everyone who's been involved with dairy farms as a part of coming through CISO so far has had sad stories about losing their herds. Do you also have a sad story about selling the herd? Oh, no. We have face <laughs> I don't and hands. know if I can tell it on no, the air. No, no, no. All I needed was a yes or no, and it looks like yes. Like, this is an ongoing trend where, like, everyone involved with cows loves them and has sad stories yeah. about the herd. I can't help but assume that part of the farmland preservation has something to do with livestock in that regard so that other people don't have to go through this. But I, it looks like you also have a sad story about losing your herd. Yeah. So the APR program was started as a means to promote agricultural viability because when a farmer sells their development rights, they'll get an influx in cash that oftentimes they can reinvest into their farm business. So I'll start with that. So then my family 
family's connection to dairy and losing our dairy herd is that when I was a young child, I was probably seven or eight, I did watch my grandfather's nephew, who was running the farm, uh, Bridgemont Farm in West Hampton, Massachusetts. I watched him sell our herd as part of the herd buyout program. So uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, the government was actually paying smaller dairy producers to stop producing milk because there were just too many dairy farms. And so there was this push for consolidation. And I remember going to the auction. It was a very cold March day and watching our herd be sold off. I'm sorry I keep bringing this up, but it's a trend, (laughs) and it just makes me sad every time. (laughs) And that was a direct result of federal agricultural policy to promote larger and larger farms and larger herds, and all these hardworking farm families who had been, you know, farming for generations were really just forced out of what they loved to do. But part of what the agricultural preservation restriction does and what American Farmland Trust is working towards is trying to make it so that it can be sustainable to not have to lose the family farm, right? Chelsea right. Gazillo from the New England branch of the American Farmland Trust here with Bill Gorman <laughs> yeah. from CESA, the local hero folks. That is very true. And another way that we're doing that, in addition to promoting programs like the APR program, is uh, working with state governments to create soil health programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know that our farmers across the country are a key part of our country's efforts to fight climate change. And one way that they can do that is by uh, implementing what we call healthy soil practices. Farmers need the funding or the resources to be able to do this. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that healthy soil practices or regenerative ag practices uh, have been implemented by indigenous communities for millennia. A lot of these practices we have stolen from indigenous communities and now are used by farmers across the valley and the country, but they are a way that we can sequester carbon in our soil. And Congressman McGovern is a champion for us on a lot of the uh, federal healthy soils policy pushes that we're trying to do in this farm bill and through other bills like the Agricultural Resiliency Act, which was introduced by Congresswoman Shelley Pingree of Maine. Chelsea Gazillo, who is from the American Farmland Trust here in New England and also a storyteller. Chelsea, you're going to be storytelling at Field Notes this Sunday, Academy of Music. It is a benefit for CISA, the local hero folks. A teeny tiny hint about what you're going to be telling a story about? Well, mildly lactose intolerant, and I found myself in Italy in front of a bunch of cheese, and I had to eat it. And that's my story. I can't wait. <laughs> Anything else we need to that know about? That was the right decision, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take your lactate and move on. <laughs> Anything else we need to know about Field Notes this uh, Sunday, Phil Corman? Uh, just that it's starting at 2 p.m. and that tickets are available at the Academy of Music. And if you need the link, you can always go to the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, CISA is an underwriter of New England Public Media. Later in the show, we'll talk with Damani Gordon from Genuine Culture LLC presenting the Native Tongues tribute at White Lion Brewery in Springfield this weekend. Up next, Jailhouse Rock. NEPM's Jill Kaufman on a program teaching guitars behind bars at the Franklin County House of Corrections. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
Welcome back to the fabulous 413. Khalees, you play guitar. I do. I quote Bono when I say I want to play the guitar very badly. And I do play the guitar very badly. <laughs> We're going to talk about the importance of learning guitar. What has learning guitar taught you, Khalees, about life in general? That almost every man in the room that I bring a guitar into tends to underestimate me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> have you been able to take that and turn it into a positive thing? A lot of songs. A lot of songs. <laughs> <laughs> But also, in general, like, music is a really wonderful thing to have in your life. Music, I think, is really important kind of across the board to everybody. Even if you think you don't like it, it's more important to you than you think. And it does more good than you think. Well, locally, you might have heard about how learning an instrument has helped with, say, the increased graduation rates at schools like SciTech in Springfield with people that are in the SciTech band. But there are some new burgeoning guitar shredders practicing songs and scales behind bars in the Franklin County Jail in Greenfield. And learning the guitar is beginning to help with both recidivism rates and the culture of the jail. The fabulous 413's mythical muse, New England Public Media's Jill Kaufman, has this story. If they choose and if they earn it, a day in the life of someone incarcerated at the Franklin County Jail and House of Corrections can be filled with activities. Monday from 9 to 11, I do macroeconomics. Eddie has been in this jail since before the pandemic, he says, and he still has another two years to go. For privacy, he asked that we not use his last name. From 1 to 2.45, I do statistic and probability. Eddie also studies French. He exercises daily. This could sound like college or a retreat, but Eddie is locked up for much of the day in a shared cell with a bunk bed, a desk, a toilet, and a sink. Many of the educational activities he does are virtual, and being allowed to use a tablet is a privilege. But would you like to work on the first first to the second position scale? Eddie also takes guitar lessons. It gives me something to do, and on top of that, music is something that helps a person. They say it enhances our mental capacity and ability. The music classes were put on hold during the pandemic, but now they're back in person. This is a semi-private class. James is playing a Fender guitar that someone donated to the program. He also asked we keep his identity private. I had been dabbling with the guitar for like three years. It wasn't structured. That was before getting arrested. James has been in jail for a year and a half, he says, awaiting sentencing. Playing guitar helps him keep his mind off things. I think definitely understanding myself and playing the guitar um, go hand in hand. James didn't want to talk about why he was arrested, neither did Eddie. It's something their guitar teacher, Michael Nix, says he never asks about. It's a personal thing they can share with me if they want, but I, I really don't care. What Nix does care about, like any music teacher, is that his students practice and learn. But given the setting, it goes beyond that. What I care about is forming positive relationships. Go. Yeah. This guitar class with James and Eddie is intermediate level. At the moment, Nick says he has about a dozen students at the jail. Some he's been teaching for more than a year, and some students he sees once and then they don't return, and he doesn't always find out why. The guitar lessons are offered to people who are in a particular unit of the Franklin County Jail, and to stay here, James says, you have to step up, go to community meetings, volunteer. We're held to a higher standard, so we gotta, we gotta do well. Or you could be moved to another unit. Even with incentives like more free time or extra hours of Netflix, not everyone takes advantage of the different courses and the therapy.
Franklin County Sheriff Christopher Donnellan says in the last decade, the opioid epidemic has pushed law enforcement to look at what it means to jail someone with addiction. The science tells us that addiction is a disease, and we're failing ourselves if we think that we can just contain uh, men and women with, with substance abuse issues in a jail and then release them and think that anything's going to change or improve. At the Franklin County Jail and some others, therapy and education and arts programs are available to help people learn how to keep their cool once they're out, find and hold on to a job, stay in therapy or drug treatment. This progressive approach is used at county jails around Massachusetts, Donnellan says. He's looked at recidivism rates using data from Franklin County and the state, and Donnellan says the results of providing these kinds of programs show promise. I think it was a 27% reduction in recidivism over a three-year cohort from 2015 to 2018. That was the first cohort for our cognitive behavioral therapy program. And studies in other states show that lower recidivism rates are a result of in-prison arts programs. Corrections professionals realize there's a lot of bang for your buck with these programs. The guitarist Wayne Kramer is part of the arts in prison movement, mostly in California. Fifty years ago, Kramer led the band MC5. It was known for having a strong influence on the early punk scene in New York and L.A. Now he and his friend, British singer-songwriter Billy Bragg, are getting musical instruments into the hands of prisoners on both sides of the Atlantic. If corrections professionals don't do something to help people change for the better, the prison experience itself will change them for the worse. Kramer speaks from experience. He was arrested in 1975 for selling cocaine. Great musicians have always gone to prison. (laughs) It's a tradition. While Kramer was locked up, The Clash wrote a song about him and a few other well-known musicians who had also landed in jail. The song, Jail Guitar Doors, is the name of Kramer and Bragg's prison music project. Kramer says he's seen some remarkable connections made between incarcerated men from rival gangs because they're playing and writing music together. I mean, I've had guys tell me, Wayne, you know that dude? And I I never liked him. I'd see him on the yard, I don't like him, man. But, you know, we worked on that song together, and he's all right. At the Franklin County Jail, James and Eddie are wrapping up their guitar lesson. Eddie says now it's time for the daily headcount. We all have to go into our cell. They'll lock the door in while they count out of us to make sure none of us escape, which is hard to do from this place. (laughs) Eddie can keep his guitar with him. For years, he's been battling depression, he says, and there's one song he recently learned that really soothes him. Like I close my eyes, I'm out in the zone somewhere, and it just relaxes me almost as a mother singing to a child. is a lullaby from the very end of the movie, The Hunger Games. Eddie says he plays it over and over. It may even be soothing to others in the jail because no one tells him to stop. For New England Public Media, I'm Jill Kaufman. And Jill Kaufman is in the studio with us. We know you have other angles and tangents that you are looking at when you're reporting a story. What else 
was a part of this larger story? So many things you're going to want to throw me out before I finish. So um, (laughs) a few things. So first, prison arts education. And we were talking about this earlier. Um, There's a lot of studies uh, that have been conducted that show that these um, so-called inmate artists, and the word inmate is not always used by many, uh, when they get out, they are more likely to approach problems with greater flexibility compared to those who are not exposed to arts programs like music and um, and writing, poetry, theater. Um, Tim Robbins out in California had a theater uh, group. Uh, I think it was called the Theater Gang. Um, <laughs> I think these are kind of bizarre, funny t- titles. Okay, so but back to the local. Those guitar classes at the Franklin County Jail, um, they are part of a bigger program at this jail um, that is connected to essentially being the the Franklin County Jail is a lockdown treatment facility. Uh, It was the first in the state. Um, It was the first to offer methadone and suboxone, which are also opioids. Um, This began in 2016. What was happening out in the community that people were, you know, there was addiction, there were crises, there were deaths. That same thing was happening in the jail. People were coming in addicted. People were being arrested because of their maybe uh, causal, you know, because of their addiction and drug issues. So in the jail, it became a big uh, health and safety matter. And Sheriff Donnellan, Chris Donnellan, who um, I think is in his second term, I could be wrong about that. He, right, uh, yeah. he, he, and others. Um, is that right? Yeah, I think you're second in term. It, yeah. um, he and others uh, created this this lockdown treatment facility. This is a small county jail. You know, it's the smallest in the state. Um, it's progressive, even. Um, I asked him, though, you know, if he had to explain to someone who's been a victim of a crime, if he's been a victim of a crime, what, um, you know, that that the inmates, the person who may have committed that crime is in jail learning about music theory or taking language and math class. Here's what he said. I think most victims of crime are satisfied with the fact that they're behind bars. The the bottom line, as as I tell my people here, it's not our job to punish. That's the judge's job. Our job is to correct behavior and offer opportunities for a, a better life of not committing crimes. Our goal is to make sure no one is ever victimized by this person again. It seems like, Jill, that the guitar players that you talked to were pretty good. And I can imagine if they were, you know, woodshedding and it was annoying that not only other people that are incarcerated, but the, the guards, et cetera, might be annoyed by the whole thing. But has it seems like an overwhelmingly positive experience for not only the people that have learned the guitar lessons, but maybe for the staff and other inmates as well. What has it changed the culture of the jail? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. I would say overwhelmingly positive. And like Eddie says at the end, you know, if if you know, um, well, he, he. I'm sorry, it's in the web story. See, I couldn't get that piece of tape in either. <laughs> Eddie says in the web in the in the digital story. He says, you know, uh, nobody's asked him to stop playing. You know, he says it in his way, like you know that his his uh, cellmate falls asleep. To Which his is great, music, right? I mean, that's adorable. Um, and by yeah. the way, in the also in the web story, um, that. That uh, lullaby, it may be from uh, The Hunger Games, but Sting wrote it uh, initially. Oh, and I, I like the way Eddie sings it. Actually. I did like it, too. Um, it it's really beautiful. Cool. Um, yeah. So the cult, but the culture, like, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, stories, there's, you know, horrific incidents of um, em- em- jail employees, pres- prison employees, guards, uh, treatment of, of people who are incarcerated. So uh, Sheriff Donnellan said back, you know, seven, eight years ago, uh, when they moved this county jail to uh, a, being a treatment facility, that was a big shift, um, and it was a big culture shift to allow people to learn and, and develop skills. It took many years, and a lot of it, it, you know, we've hired many new officers in the 12 years that I've been sheriff, and over the years, um, we've gotten buy-in because people see it's working. Uh, they see the behavior of the men and women here when expectations are high and they're given an opportunity to prove themselves and they get re- rewarded for that work, hard work. Um, they see there's a cost and there's a benefit. So even though he's not here working specifically with Franklin County, you got to talk with Wayne Kramer from MC5, which is 
awesome. Yeah. What else did you Plus learn from Billy your Bragg? Yeah, I, mean, I know. Cool. Let's I mean, not... even talk to Billy Bragg. Please, do you, do you remember how I was running around the office going, hey, is Who's MC5? Yeah, and I we mean, weren't you know, going to out you. Do Wayne Kramer's? I'm outing you. And, and, and I'm like, yes. She's yes. just like, Chuck, yes, I important. know who Wayne Kramer the two is. Of you had so much knowledge without looking up, without Googling a thing. Oh, Anyhow, so this this piece of tape is on the lighter side. If there is a lighter side of you know incarceration, um, so you're going to hear Wayne Kramer, um, you, who you heard in the story. Um, so he and Billy Bragg about 15 years ago were were performing at Sing Sing. Um, this is before Wayne Kramer began Jail Guitar Doors. Um, and, and Sing Sing is north of New York City. It's up the Hudson. It's a notorious, or had been a notorious lockup facility. Um, Kramer sees a bumper sticker on Billy Bragg's um, guitar case, and it says, Jail Guitar Doors. And that's the name of a song from The Clash, which you heard in the story. And Wayne says, why is that on your guitar case? And Billy says, oh, I started this prison music education program. I called it Jail Guitar Doors. And this is Wayne Kramer reenacting what he said. And he said, what? And I said, what are the lyrics? And he said, right. Let me tell you about wine and his deals of cocaine. Bloody hell, it is about you. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for that piece, Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News Department. Thank you so much. We're going to learn about more music coming up in just a little bit. Native Tongues, one of the most important forces in hip-hop history. We'll talk with Holyoke's Damani Gordon, who's hosting a free tribute to Native Tongues at White Lion Brewery in Springfield. This Saturday, this is the Clash song that we were just referencing as well. <laughs> I'm psyched about Native Tongues, though. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Back to the fabulous 413. That new birth song is the inspiration for Native Tongues, and there's a tribute to Native Tongues happening this Saturday at White Lion Brewery in Springfield, presented by Genuine Culture LLC and its founder, Damani Gordon, originally from Amherst, now making his home in Holyoke and joining us now in the studio. Thank you for coming in, Damani. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here tell on us. the Fabulous 413. Excellent. <laughs> we need to turn that into a promo. Seriously. Um, tell us what Genuine Culture LLC is all about. Yeah, uh, Genuine Culture LLC, uh, we started back in 2017, and we are a local independent organization that promotes and organizes uh, various cultural events uh, based on the spirit of hip-hop and black culture in general. Now, I, can, I understand why Native Tongues would be like an obvious choice for something you'd have a tribute to, but like... Why why pick this collective? And it's a collective. It's, a, it's several folks in hip-hop yes. in like late 80s, early 90s. But why them? Yeah, well, the Native Tongues as a collective, just very inspiring to me and others. Um, as well as, you know, being a youngster around Amherst, I got a chance to see uh, a few of the Native Tongues collective, uh, such as Queen Latifah, De La Soul, and A Tribe Called Quest. So I've been very inspired by their music and and you could still, uh, you know, just see their impact in today's artists, a lot of today's artists as well. Um, so I'm glad to represent uh, the collective and just, just so many hits and great music. 
what I think is really great about native tongues is, I mean, I was talking to Khalees about this earlier. There's like all these colors that stick out in my head when I think of them. And then I remember like going home and watching Yo! MTV raps. And, yes. and like it's a very particular period of time. But as you mentioned, it's a bunch of disparate artists who came together. How did they come together and why is it important that they did both for that time and then going forward to influence more hip hop? Yeah, sure. At the time, uh, which is, you know, the um, Jungle Brothers, the group, they set off the, the Native Tongues Collective. Quick and pause there, because Jungle Brothers is coming, shameless plug, Gateway City Arts, June 24th. And they're 24th. fantastic That's live. Right. If you've never seen them, they're awesome. They still, still slap. <laughs> yes, and I, I'm excited about that one because this is the first time I'll be seeing them live when they come oh, to Gateway City Arts. So, yes, I'm amped. <laughs> sure. So it starts with the Jungle Brothers. Yes, and uh, the Jungle Brothers, you know, and, and at the time, you know, the Jungle Brothers and NWA came out around the same time, uh, which is, uh, you know, very different aspects of the culture. Um, and from there, the Jungle Brothers connected with uh, Q-Tip from a tribe called Quest, and then De La Soul came. And I think the night they kind of formed was on at a show going to Boston. Yeah, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, which is a fun kind of localish connection. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> the connection right there. These are all New York City that's uh, right. based groups. But, yeah, yeah. But, but like Jungle Brothers hooks up with De La Soul and at a show in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So just amazing story. And then it, there's all these different phases of Native Tongues as well that continue to influence. You know going up as far as, let's say, Common, who's kind of associated with Native Tongues in, in different incarnations of it. Oh, oh, most definitely, yeah. And, you know, I think... That's the, speaking of. Yes, exactly. Most, <laughs> most, <laughs> most, <laughs> most definitely. Most <laughs> No, exactly. These no. are all hip-hop references. Yeah, yeah. If you're classical music fans, I'm sorry to exclude you, but we're trying to... This is a very hip-hop-y conversation. This is, this is hip-hop. You know, we, we represent hip-hop in the 413 as well, you know? But don't act like classical hasn't been That's, sampled in oh, hip-hop. Oh, for sure. Like, oh, absolutely. It absolutely sure. has. Yeah. Yeah, hip hop's a little bit of everything, and um, I think just it's very important to just keep uh, the culture going. And we see people like Kendrick Lamar, the big J Cole, uh, Tyler the Creator, Pharrell. We can go on and on. Are, are kind of like direct descendants from the Native Tums Collective in terms of being yourself, being free, um, having fun, having a comedic spin to things. And just really representing you, the Afrocentricity and Black culture in general. Yeah, and positivity with that. That's right. Too, like That's right. Looking for a positive future within that Afrocentricity. That's right. And it definitely comes across when you hear the music. It is all so fun. Like that era of hip hop is fun. Is like one of the first things that like jumps out at you. But do talk about the Afrocentricity and why that was important for those particular groups at the time. Yeah, I and, and that's important because, like I mentioned, you know, uh, you know, it, it's ironic, I'm bringing this back, that N.W.A. and Jungle Brothers came in at the same time. And N.W.A., if you don't follow it, they have a they're very hard-edged, yes. from the streets, yes. gritty, sometimes. Quote-unquote yeah. gangster rappers. Gangster rappers, people yeah. call. So, yeah. uh, and on the flip side of that was the Native Tongues, and that, represent, that represents the other side of, of the culture. You know, uh, the African medallions, uh, the hairstyles, um, the really eclectic um, aesthetic that they had was is very important, and I think it's very important for um, everybody, especially the younger generation, to come up and see that and say, you, "We could really relate to the Native Tongues crew, like in, in a real way." You know, we I think they the, the way their collective is, we could whoever you are, you could find some type of uh, represent representation of you in that collective, and I think that's why they're so important and powerful. It's one of the things that makes Buddy such a cool song. Oh, yes. Like, like oh. not just representing the Native Tongues collective, but like each of the voices and how relatable That's each right. of them are, how human each of those voices yes. is. 
Because there's no actual native tongues recording. There are a bunch of recordings that would be classified as native tongues recordings, including that song, Buddy, but there's no album from native tongues. That's right. It it really is this amorphous... It's like Voltron or something like yeah. that. They all come together. and well, they, they'd be it, recording, and then like somebody else would be recording down the hall or on right. another floor. They'd just stop in. Like, <laughs> exactly. what are you up to? Hey, it's up? like, all right, hey, <laughs> come hang out on this verse. So what's going to happen in the minute we have left? What's going to happen on Saturday with this Native Tongues tribute? Oh, yeah, you, you're going to hear all of the Native Tongues hits as well as the B-sides. And it's going to be like we, we talk about having fun, and that's what it's going to be about, getting together and having fun. And, you know, there's, there's extensions to um, – uh, native tongues too, you know, just it's black sheep, you know, Chiali, the beat nuts. I mean, there's so many. So you're gonna hear a lot of great music from what we call the golden era of hip hop. So it's gonna be fun. It's free, and and we're gonna turn up with uh, Pizzo Pete, who's an amazing DJ as well. That's yeah. starting at seven o'clock this Saturday at White Lion Brewery in downtown Springfield. You also got a Ramsey Lewis tribute coming up at Gateway City Arts in June third. June third, and then um, if you're actually interested in seeing one of the groups behind Native Tongues. The Jungle Brothers coming to Gateway City Arts on June 24th. Damani Gordon from Genuine Culture LLC, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about this tribute and giving us some hip-hop history. Hanging out with us all afternoon, wicked, wicked cool stuff. Tomorrow, Monica Lopez Orozco, assistant professor of theater at Smith, directing the play La Ruta. We'll have more for National Poetry Month with Northampton's Poet Laureate and veteran Karen Schofield. And word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. Our director is Tony, assistant to the doorman Dunn. Our technical team is Bart, rolling with those punches, Rankin, Kara, witness the aftermath of a mob hit Foster and punk rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Sonu Nigam, The Clash, The New Birth, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, Q-Tip, and Harry Belafonte. We'll see you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.